and again, I wanted to really much draw from Vietnamese refugee epistemologies as well. So nook or longing for nook in the homeland is a concept that comes up a lot in um, Vietnamese diasporic poetry and politics as a way, again, to pay homage, homage to the lost um, homeland, um, you know, the space that they had to leave um, in order to flee and find resettlement elsewhere. Um, but again, nook, you know, which in one hand means water, but it also, again, means country and homeland. And so again, we have this land water dialectic um, that I think gives us again, another kind of imaginary that is different from the sort of bounded politics of the nation state or the very um, sort of ownership um, politics, private ownership politics of the settler colonial state. spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello everyone, today we're coming back with a new episode of the Phenomenalist podcast and my guest is Ivan Lay Espiritu Gandhi, who is Assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as the author of a brand new book called Archipelago of Resettlement, Vietnamese Refugee Settlers and Decolonization Across Guam and Israel-Palestine. Uh, at the University of California Press that is coming out on April 19th. Hello, Evan. Hello, thank you so much for having me. No, uh, thank you very much for spending the time to, an to answer my questions today. Perhaps just to begin, may I ask you who did the artwork uh, for the cover uh, of your book? It's, it's really a, a very, very beautiful one. Oh, yes. Uh, her name is Adrienne Ryan. Um, so she's an artist uh, whose work I really admire. And the, the title of the art piece is Crusted Territory. Thanks. Uh, so we jump right into your book. I mean, one of one absolutely central concept of it, as the title suggests, is the concept of refugee settler, um, which is something you're, you're coining based on uh, your own uh, research and, and, uh, and also what we may have seen on the ground uh, from... Um, Uh, from uh, from organizers, I'm thinking in particular in in Australia, where um, people organizing with the Aboriginal struggle for sovereignty are resolutely using the concept of settler to designate to designate their political condition on this land, including people of refugee families. And so I was wondering, um, I, I was wondering what forms of operational politics do you think that this concept facilitates, and and how does that um, also perhaps response 
to um, indigenous activists in Australia again or in Turtle Island fighting against the carceral archipelago built against refugees or against a so-called Muslim ban. Uh, we can remember our friends uh, Melanie Yazi and Nick Estes with their uh, no ban on stolen land slogan. Um, and so, you know, if we think of formerly enslaved people in the Caribbean and the Americas, we, we, we cannot think of themselves as settlers, that's for sure. But so what does that produce politically to insist that refugees should be considered as such? Yeah, I mean, I think, thank you so much for the question. Um, so maybe I'll just start by talking a little bit about this concept, um, refugee settlers or refugee settler condition, um, and maybe how I came to find this concept uh, to kind of name this phenomenon really helpful for thinking about refugees' implication um, and vex positionality, when, what happens when they uh, resettle in settler colonial states. Um, so I want to think about the refugee settler or what I call the refugee settler condition to think about, you know, this kind of fraught positionality of refugee subjects whose resettlement in a settler colonial state um, is predicated on an unjust dispossession of indigenous subjects. Um, so really how the settler colonial state puts them in a structural antagonistic relationship um, to indigenous decolonization struggles. Um, so in what ways are refugees implicated, right, in the settler colonial policies of the state in which they are resettled? Um, but what happens also when refugees encounter indigenous sovereignty struggles um, in these spaces and in these sites of resettlement? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about my positionality uh, and how I came to this question, because I think it's a political question, um, but it's also you know, a personal question in a lot of ways, too, that I think a lot of intellectual and academic political projects are. Um, so my mom and grandmother were Vietnamese refugees um, who left Saigon, South Vietnam in 1975. Um, they passed through Guahan or Guam and were eventually resettled uh, in Southern California. Um, and so I really wanted to think about, you know, what was our positionality then um, in relation to um, Native struggles and critiques of settler colonialism, um, not only in California, but broadly in Turtle Island, right, in which you invoked. Um, and I think that this question is really building off of actually a lot of the work that's coming out of Asian settler colonialism which does draw a distinction between sort of white settler colonial politics, right, which you had mentioned before. Um, I got to give a, you know, sort of shout out to the late Patrick Wolf here as well, who was writing in the um, Australian Aboriginal context that you invoked in your question. Um, and so sort of drawing from his critique of the role that settlers um, really dispossess um, and ongoing forms of dispossession of Aboriginal um, and Native peoples. Um, and so Asian settler colonialism came out of the Hawaiian context, in particular, trying to think about um, immigrant subjects from Asia who really do, due to issues of labor migration, um, you know, were recruited to work in the sugar plantations in Hawaii. Um, and so they came, you know, with a different um, form of uh, less sovereignty, we can say, than sort of the white settlers, right? They were very implicated in very different ways. Um, however, you know, sort of post-1950s, post um, a lot of Asian American subjects um, gained positions and key positions of power in Hawaii. So they're very much implicated um, in the structures and the policies that continue to dispossess Kanaka Maoli um, in Hawaii. Um, 
you know, at the same time, I really wanted to think about what is the specificity um, of refugees, right, who don't, who unlike, you know, some immigrant populations don't have a choice in where they end up um, and really didn't have a choice regarding leaving their homeland, right? So really thinking about the specificity of the condition of forced displacement and how does that then structure um, their relationship to the lands of their resettlement, right? Um, I want to be really clear that, you know, in this project, the goal is not to point fingers or administer blame on refugees, right? Um, like, why are you here in this settler colonial state because of these conditions of forced displacement that are very real and very material for folks? So I want to say, you know, at the same time that we need to have a politics of resettlement and uh, embracing refugees who have been displaced, you know, at the same time, we need to attend to the spaces in which they are displaced to and think about the land contestation struggles which are occurring there. So, you know, as you mentioned, um, Melanie Yazi and Nick Estes' concept or politics of no ban on stolen land is a huge sort of inspiration um, for my work as well, and really thinking about not only how refugees, but also uh, Indigenous scholars and activists are reframing the conversation, right, to think about a welcome of refugee subjects on Indigenous terms rather than on the terms of the settler colonial state. Thanks. Um, and so your book, uh, as a, your book uh, retraces with great precision the settling of Vietnamese refugees in, in Guahan and Guam, as you, as you, already, as you already evoked, uh, as well as in Palestine, which are admittedly two significantly distinct uh, contexts. May, may I ask you why these two geographies and the way uh, these stories connect with the Chamorro and Palestinian liberation struggles uh, are the two that you, you chose? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So the book, uh, as you mentioned, looks at, in particular, Vietnamese refugee migration and resettlement to um, Guahan or Guam and Israel-Palestine. Um, and I do have a one, section, one section or chapter that looks a little bit more specifically at Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese Americans in Turtle Island, um, which is chapter two. So that chapter, I think, is really a point of departure to look at these other sites of overlooked um, resettlement. So I'll talk a little bit first about how I came to choose these two sites and then explain um, analytically why I think it's really important to talk about these two sites in relation, um, particularly in conversation with um, scholarship in American studies um, and Asian American studies more specifically. Why is it important to look at these um, particular sites? So just to give some context, um, I first started this project um, in 2013, so it's been almost a decade um, when I was starting out as a PhD student um, at UC Berkeley in the rhetoric department. Um, and I came to my PhD program interested in questions of Vietnamese refugee history and memory um, and collective memory politics. Um, I knew I wanted to do some sort of comparative relational project, um, but I wasn't sure yet what that would be. And one of the very first classes that I took for my PhD program, um, which is with Professor Daniel Boyarin, um, was thinking about comparative diaspora, diaspora theory. So we looked at um, Black Atlantic diaspora and politics, um, but also really thinking about uh, Jewish diasporic critiques of Zionism as well. And so for this class, as many students 
um, probably encounter, you know, I ask myself, well, what am I going to write <laughs> for my term paper for this class? Try to engage, you know, the theories of this class, which were really um, compelling and influential to me. And um, it was somewhat serendipitous that I stumbled upon um, this small uh, population of Vietnamese refugees in Israel who became Israeli citizens. Um, and this became a really interesting case study for me to um, then think about questions of Zionism and critique of Zionism, um, as well as settler colonialism, um, diaspora, and to really insert my own you know, personal interest in Vietnamese refugee politics and Vietnamese refugee diaspora in a very material and historical way um, into these larger questions, right? And to reframe the sort of antagonisms or debates around Israel-Palestine, which I think are sometimes articulated as a very binary um, conflict. What happens when we sort of think about this third population or this third space or third term of Vietnamese refugees in this uh, site of land contestations um, and settler colonial politics? And so that, I think, opened up a lot of the questions um, that I became interested in thinking about, about putting critical refugee studies in conversation um, with a lot of the work that was coming out of settler colonial studies, as well as indigenous studies and activism as well. So the case study of Guahan came a little later um, in the project. Um, you know, I, of course, was asked um, why don't you look at the Turtle Island context? Um, a lot of the scholarship on Vietnamese refugees and Americans um, is focused on um, the Turtle Island of the United States. So I think that I didn't want that necessarily be, to be a main case study. Um, but Guahan, of course, is an unincorporated U.S. territory of the United States. It's the uh, homeland of the Chamorro people, um, and it's part of the larger Marianas Islands or Marianas Archipelago. Um, that has suffered many centuries of colonialism, you know, at the hands of the Spanish, um, and then more recently and continuing today, U.S. military uh, intervention and uh, settlement, U.S. military bases um, on the island of Guahan. And so this was a space, you know, that was, of course, part of the U.S. empire, but largely has been overlooked, you know, I think in conversations and critiques of U.S. militarism and U.S. military empire. Um, Guam also played a key role um, in facilitating U.S. military intervention into Southeast Asia um, during the Vietnam War. And so I really wanted to highlight, you know, this site, um, highlight the voices of a lot of the Chamorro decolonization activists who have been a great inspiration for me. Um, but also, as I mentioned, to honor the personal journey of my own relatives um, and community members um, who did pass through Guahan. So Guahan is the first major U.S. processing center for Vietnamese refugees. I think its role in the early Vietnamese refugee resettlement efforts on behalf of the U.S. has been very much erased and overshadowed. Um, and so I just wanted to pay homage um, to the Vietnamese refugees' experiences on Guahan, um, as well as the role of Chamorros and other Guamanians um, and facilitating uh, that refugee process. But, you know, I think also then analytically, you know, what does it mean to put Guahan in conversation with Israel-Palestine, right? Um, and part of it is I want to pinpoint these two sides of settler colonialism um, and indigenous displacement, but also U.S. empire. Um, and so this is why, as I mentioned before, I really see this as in a lot of ways, an American studies um, project, which is 
to say, a project that critiques U.S. empire um, and its different forms and manifestations. Um, so I think that we'll have an opportunity to talk about the archipelago a little later. But one way to think about it is to think about um, an archipelago of U.S. intervention and U.S. Um, imperial um, influence um, to really connect sites that I think in our political discourse often gets um, separated. Um, and we really think, I think, need to think about and analyze these sites in relation um, in order to have a fuller critique of uh, U.S. imperial power. Um, and one way to do that is to historically trace, you know, where did Vietnamese refugees um, end up? And so in some ways, you know, I think that this is a historically grounded project to really trace the migration patterns of Vietnamese refugee forced displacement as a way to render visible the sometimes occluded circuits of U.S. military power. Um, but on the other hand, I think it also allows for a more precise um, analytical envisioning of um, what Chadwick Allen calls transindigenous uh, resistance and solidarity. So thinking about how tomorrow decolonization activists, you know, what are the resonances and linkages with Palestinian liberation struggles, um, and which again are often talked about um, separately from each other. But if we sort of, again, think about the material traces of Vietnamese refugee migration, this is one way to materially um, put these two indigenous struggles into conversation with one another and to echo a lot of the activism um, that's already happening on the ground. Yeah, there's really something about islands uh, in with regards to continental empires and how uh, those empires tend to really consider islands as a place as a buffer somehow a place that does not does not really reach them of course we see it with the the carceral archipelago of australia right now but also in guantanamo with um in the 90s with uh haitian refugees um as uh naomi peck has been uh writing about uh another guest of this podcast <laughs> in the past um the, that's uh, that's pretty striking isn't it Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'll give a shout out to uh, the historian Jaina Lipman here, um, who has done a lot of work on sort of U.S. military bases on the usage of island spaces. So she's written um, a book on Guantanamo, um, but also she looks at uh, some of the cases of Vietnamese refugee uh, repatriation from Guam. So her work um, has been a great inspiration um, to my project as well. But thanks for pointing that out. Thanks. And uh, yeah, as far as Guahan is concerned, I might also refer uh, subscribe, um, sorry, listeners <laughs> uh, to the article we published uh, by Kiara Kichocho, who's a young uh, Chamorro um, writer um, about, about Guahan in, uh, in our decolonial ecologies issue, which is in open access on the website because we run it out of print. Um, but so if, if we go back to another key, uh, component of your, of your research, um, we can talk about how the U S and Israeli governments have practiced the politics of what, uh, Rebecca Stein has characterized as humanitarian alibi. And I'm, I'm quoting, I'm quoting, I mean, I'm quoting her, but I'm quoting her from, from your book. Um, and it also makes me uh, think of, of the great work of uh, Mimi Tinyuan about the gift of freedom. Uh, Mimi had been our first 
uh, guest uh, ever on this uh, on this podcast already nine years ago. Um, but so I, I I really I really enjoyed reading your book in in this genealogy of uh, of going through uh, Mimi's uh, Mimi's book. Um, and so I was wondering whether you could um, you could explain this sort of instrumentalization or this humanitarian alibi um, and perhaps how sometimes refugees might find ways to not be instrumentalized this way. Yeah, definitely. So maybe I'll talk um, a little bit about the U.S. Um, government, um, particularly within the Turtle Island case, though it can be extrapolated to the Guahan case. Um, and then I will talk about this really government's um, sort of rhetorical role of how it positions uh, Vietnamese refugees. Um, and really here thinking about Kanda Fujikani's term yellow washing, um, as well as Rebecca Elstein's um, concept, the humanitarian alibi, which you mentioned, um, as feeling really helpful concepts that I think I am uh, trying to build on. Um, and so maybe just to start with the U.S. case. Um, so scholar uh, Yanlei Espiritu um, really critiques how the United States um, very much quickly after the Vietnam War um, turned around and resettled a vast number of Vietnamese refugees and Southeast Asian refugees more broadly within a Cold War context um, in which they very much used the um, resettlement of anti-communist refugees um, in some ways as a kind of PR reframing of the United States, not as a military uh, imperial power. Um, and there was a lot of domestic critiques in the United States um, of U.S. empire um, that were happening. We can think about the Black Panthers, um, the Asian American movement, uh, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, et cetera. These critiques that were being forwarded against the U.S. Um, government as being an imperial power. Um, but the U.S. quickly reframed itself then, you know, and part of the discourse was to say, well, actually, we are a humanitarian <laughs> empire, right? Um, or very much a humanitarian resettlement nation. So rather than attending to or critiquing what happened during the Vietnam War, we'd like to draw our attention to the humanitarian resettlement of the Vietnamese refugees. Um, I want to be careful when I say this, though, to say that, you know, I do think that it is important to um, resettle refugees, right, even if they have been um, discursively instrumentalized, right? Um, this is not to sort of critique uh, resettlement policies in any ways, but rather how they are uh, rhetorically coded, right, and used to um, occlude other forms of political critique. So within the Israeli context, which is quite different, um, but I think we can see some resonances. So just to give a little context for our listeners, um, in the late 1970s, um, Israel, uh, the state of Israel resettled um, three waves of Vietnamese refugees. Um, so a first wave in 1977 of 66 Vietnamese refugees, and then several hundred more um, in cross two cases in 1979. So this was under the leadership of Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Um, and so as his very first act um, in, of office uh, in, in Israel of being elected, um, he granted um, the asylum to this first wave of 66 Vietnamese refugees. Um, and very much in his rhetoric of why he felt compelled to do so, um, he invoked the Holocaust history of Jewish refugee displacement and was very much drawing parallels 
um, with Vietnamese refugees as a way to say why um, the state of Israel, which was um, then represented as a, a nation, right, of displaced Jewish refugees, um, felt a particular sense of affinity with the Vietnamese refugee displacement and wanted to help out. So in my project, you know, I think I'm less interested in debating uh, the sincerity of such uh, proclamations, which I do think that for a lot of people, you know, they were genuinely um, empathizing with the Vietnamese refugee case. Instead, I'm really interested in critiquing how this particular rhetoric of refugee, you know, refugee empathy um, draws attention away from, or rather actively erases, the contemporaneous uh, displacement of Palestinian refugees, right? So then the question becomes, who is legitimately recognized as a refugee, right, within these spaces? And really trying to attend to the complexity complexity um, that Jewish uh, refugee migration to um, the state of Israel was um, then enacted via these settler colonial policies that displaced um, Palestinians and did not allow the right of return, right? Those two things didn't have to happen um, at the same time. We can think about um, the sort of refuge, right, of Jewish refugees alongside um, Palestinians um, allowed to stay in their villages and ancestral homelands. So Candace Fujikani, you know, who is writing about this context um, in a slightly different valence, thinks about this concept of yellow washing, right? So how are Asian subjects um, and Israel's uh, treatment of them actually a way to, again, sort of direct attention away from the settler colonial displacement of Palestinians? Um, and then Rebecca Alstein similarly um, talks about the humanitarian alibi. So this is very much um, a key component of my research um, and thinking about how Vietnamese refugees, you know, in a lot of ways can be rhetoric rhetorically instrumentalized by the settler colonial state, right? Um, and, you know, as part of my project, I did do a lot of um, interviews with Vietnamese refugees, both uh, in Guahan as well as in Israel-Palestine. And one of the things that I found is that in some ways, you know, there is a strong and very genuine um, sense of gratitude, you know, sincere gratitude to the settler colonial state for resettling them, which I think makes perfect sense, right? Um, you have a population that really experience the um, trauma of forced displacement. And so there is um, a deep sense of gratitude for being able to resettle um, in a safer space, right? To try to rebuild um, their lives after war. But what I wanna to, want to draw our attention to though, um, is that this identification you know, with the settler colonial state um, is vexed, right? And try to think about the implication then um, and how Vietnamese refugees who are forcibly displaced are inadvertently or against their intention then implicated in the forced displacement of another population, right? So indigenous and native um, peoples, with, particularly within the settler colonial context. So in the book, I try to think about, well, what ways can we sort of push back against this um, structural antagonism that I think the state sets up between refugees um, and indigenous subjects, right? And there are several ways that I kind of want to track this or map this. Um, the first is kind of at the level of just quotidian forms of um, resistance or quotidian forms of kind of pushing back against the state rhetoric, 
Um, so in particular in the uh, Israel-Palestine case, um, I look at what's called what I'm trying to call media fatigue. So basically, you know, every time there is kind of a public uh, political debate in Israel-Palestine about resettling um, new waves of refugees, so in particular from places like Syria, Eritrea, Sudan, um, Israel has been, um, since the Vietnamese refugee case, quite reticent um, or strict in terms of not allowing uh, future um, asylum cases to be successful. Um, and so typically the media will then go to Vietnamese refugees and be like, well, what do you think? And also, can you explain your refugee story so that we can actually direct our attention to this happy story um, of Vietnamese refugee resettlement or successful resettlement in the state of Israel? Um, and sometimes Vietnamese refugees will actually say no. You know, they say we don't want to be continuing to be invoked in this way. Um, then you only come to us when you want us to sort of repeat our gratitude um, to the Israeli state. So thinking about that as a kind of, you know, everyday um, kind of way of critiquing or, or having a sense of resistance, right? Um, within the Guahan case, you know, one of the things that I look at, again, is just sort of um, quotidian forms of survival, particularly in that first sort of moment of uh, resettlement in 1975. So the U.S. military as an institution um, was the one that was very critical in um, managing the refugee processing um, right in Guam. And so I point to sort of newspapers um, and sort of textual evidence that shows that, you know, Vietnamese refugees weren't like solely um, at the um, hands of U.S. military um, sort of power jurisdiction. There are some ways that they push back. So an interesting example is um, if we look at the food. So food came up in a lot of the oral histories and memories. Um, you know, you had Vietnamese refugees who all of a sudden were put in this U.S. military jurisdiction and the U.S. military wanted to serve them American food or military rations, right? Things like that. And they said, well, I've never had <laughs> mashed potatoes or, you know, hamburger meat before. Um, and so they really actually pushed the U.S. military to um, serve them more culturally specific uh, foods, such as uh, nukmam uh, or fish sauce um, and rice um, and more leafy vegetables, et cetera. Um, but the other thing that I kind of want to do in this project is also point towards uh, cultural production, right? So I really think that a lot of um, Vietnamese diasporic artists, writers, as well as um, Chamorro and Palestinian cultural producers as well, are offering us um, decolonial visions of what um, refugee indigenous solidarity can look like, right? You know, one of the things that I find in this project is that solidarity is really difficult because of these structural antagonisms or impasses that are set up by what I'm calling the refugee settler condition. Um, and so we really need to turn to, I think, cultural production um, to give us one way of envisioning um, what cultural theorist Raymond Williams calls structures of feelings, right, that are emergent. They're not quite there on the social sphere yet, um, but we can see, to see them bubbling up. And if we find the sort of language to articulate them, this helps to um, envision a politics of solidarity that might otherwise seem impossible or be on the horizon of possibility. Um, so just to give a couple um, examples, um, I look at a blog called... Uh, Decolonization Conversation that was created in 2008 
by Bianca Wang. So she is a Chamorro Vietnamese um, subject um, in Guahan. Um, and I really am interested in her work and thinking about how both the legacies of military uh, imperial intervention in Vietnam, as well as um, settler militarism in the Guahan context, how both of these genealogical and historical legacies are informing her particular um, sort of understanding of decolonization um, in the Guahan context. Um, and then in the um, Israel-Palestine context, I'm really interested in the work of um, Vietnamese-Israeli poet uh, Van Wang, whose parents were part of the third wave of Vietnamese refugee resettlement. Um, she herself was born um, as an Israeli citizen. Um, and thinking about her work and her poetry in particular, um, and its kind of affective and uh, formal exilic poetics, which I trace in the book and think about it in relation to Palestinian writing, what resonances do we see in terms of themes um, as well as politics. Um, but the other key uh, point of cultural production that I look at is actually a documentary film um, called The Journey of Van Wing, which looks at the poet, but also her father um, and her father's claim in particular to try to reclaim his own ancestral um, lands in uh, Vietnam, um, sort of post-war communist uh, unified state of Vietnam, and how he himself had to give up a lot of his lands um, as an anti-communist refugee who fled. Um, so thinking about actually what are some of the resonances between land contestation politics in the Israel-Palestine context and then land contestation and reclamation politics um, in the Vietnamese context, right? Um, and how can we sort of think through parallels through that as one way um, to envision a common language of solidarity around sort of land politics, um, both in the Vietnamese context as well as the Israel-Palestine context? And so you, we already talked a little bit about archipelagos, but um, uh, of course, this is a fairly uh, common image, uh, in particular, thanks to Edouard Glissant. Uh, the Funambulist podcast itself was used to be called Archipelago for its three first years of existence between 2013 and 2016. And, and it's still a very, a very powerful uh, image. But what you do in this archipelago of resettlement is that you also introduce to the image of the archipelago, you, you introduce uh, the concept of, of knock. Um, a Vietnamese concept uh, and um, that that also talks about the earth and and um, and the, and the water and I was wondering if you could tell us uh, to finish this conversation which kind of solidarity politics this allows us to envision yeah thank you so much for the question so you know I think like a lot of um, analytics that inform uh, an organization of a longer book project so the archipelago um, or the Vietnamese concept of nuk, which means um, water, uh, but it also means homeland, um, our country. Um, and so I was really interested in the non-opposition of land and water here um, and how that can inform um, our solidarity politics, our decolonial um, projects and visions for these politics um, in the contemporary moment, but also historically. Um, so, you know, like a lot of uh, organizational concepts, they came rather a little bit later um, in the project and in the writing, um, but they came, became therefore then very useful for me. 
Um, so maybe I'll start with the archipelago. Um, so I was really struggling, I think, in the original writing and uh, the early writing stages of this project to think about how can I talk about these two very different um, case studies in relation to one another, right? Vietnamese refugees and Guahan, and then Vietnamese refugee resettlement and the state of Israel and its relationship to Palestinian liberation struggles. Um, and so I needed a concept that could help me envision and talk about this kind of relationality, right? Um, and I talk in the book about how a concept of, for example, archipelagic history um, was more helpful for me than thinking about imperial history or transnational history um, or other terms that really wanted to recenter either the empire or that would recenter a kind of nation state politics, right? And I think the archipelago is something that's very much informed by indigenous and decolonial politics that can get away from the presumed centrality of the nation state or empire as an organizing form, right? To think about these more global spatial imaginaries. Um, and so the archipelago in the book functions in several regards. I mentioned a little earlier, um, thinking about an archipelago of US empire as a way to envision these different um, military bases. Um, this is drawing a lot from other work that has been done about um, US military bases. Um, but also thinking about an archipelago, right, of trans-Indigenous resistance, an archipelago of Vietnamese refugee resettlement as well, thinking about a never, again, a different kind of spatial imaginary. And one of the things that I wanted to do, right, in this sort of critique of what is sometimes seen as a binary opposition between land and water, um, on one hand, you know, land, I think, is a very central analytic for indigenous decolonization struggles, right? The land back movement, um, sort of thinking about reclamation or rejuvenation of, of land spaces. But I'm also very much informed by a lot of the Pacific Islander scholarship and activism that's coming out of uh, Pacifica and Oceania um, to really think about how water, right, really kind of disrupts the uh, stability of the land, um, but how water um, and the fluidity of its politics can also be mapped onto the fluidity of diasporic movement, right? Um, and water, again, is also a key uh, form of analytic um, for indigenous struggles, right? We can think about the, the no dapple movement, sort of critiques of, of the pipeline, water is life, um, as being key um, sort of native struggles as well. Um, so again, you know, I didn't want to reproduce this binary as, oh, land is stable and water is fluid, but actually think about how these two terms are actually in conversation with one another. And I think the archipelago, which allows an envisioning of both land and water, um, can help us to this kind of more complexity in our politics. Um, and so, you know, again, I also didn't want this analytic to be something that just I, as um, a situated scholar, would kind of impose, right? And so I also want to stress that I think that this idea of the archipelago um, is informed very much by the specificity of my case studies. So I mentioned before that Guahan is part of a larger archipelago, the Marianas. Um, and I really draw from a map by uh, the French artist Julian Buzak to think about Palestine, um, particularly East, Eastern Palestine as a archipelago as well, right? As a framework for really critiquing about 
the non-contiguous um, and increasingly non-contiguous spaces of Palestinian um, sovereignty um, and land bases due to um, Israeli um, occupation um, in the West Bank, um, but also its settler colonial policies more broadly. And again, I wanted to really much draw from Vietnamese refugee epistemologies as well. So nook or longing for nook in the homeland is a concept that comes up a lot in um, Vietnamese diasporic poetry and politics as a way, again, to pay homage, homage to the lost um, homeland, um, you know, the space that they had to leave um, in order to flee and find resettlement elsewhere. Um, but again, nook, you know, which in one hand means water, but it also, again, means country and homeland. And so, again, we have this land-water dialectic um, that I think gives us, again, another kind of imaginary that is different from the sort of bounded politics of the nation state or the very um, sort of ownership um, politics, private ownership politics of the settler colonial state. Um, and so I hope that these um, analytics of the archipelago Arnuk can give us um, a language that can bridge a sort of refugee epistemology and context, as well as an indigenous and native um, decolonial politics um, as just one framework that can help us think um, about decolonial solidarities um, in the present uh, moment. Well, thank you so much, Yvonne, for, uh, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really enjoy being in conversation, um, and I look forward to listening to the other podcasts um, in this series as well. Thanks again, and have a great day. Thank you.